This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. We're back with another exciting episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. It's drive time with Brad and Kevin. <laughs> Brad is in town. I'm doing this live. We are doing it Let's live. give Brad some of that famous, effusive Minnesota warmth. I want to hear it. Bring it for Brad. That's more than I'm expecting, frankly. That's the, the most warmth <laughs> you're going to experience during your, during your entire uh, stay here. Brad's in town from Detroit. Yeah. I live here. Blast. Yeah. This is a little different, isn't it? It yeah. is. Yeah. All right. I'm not used to having I'm you. not anywhere yeah. near this close to you. Ever. No, right. <laughs> it's a little nerve-wracking. Uh, I'm just going to really quickly say thank you for coming, obviously. Uh, and the order of operations tonight is we're going to uh, do F. Scott Fitzgerald part four and a half hours of F. <laughs> Scott Fitzgerald. The door is locked. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he bumped into Alistair Crowley at one point. Uh, so he, no, he did not, as far as I know. It, it could have happened. Um, and, and that's going to go for about 75 minutes. Then we're going to take a very, very quick break, do a change. And then you're going to hear uh, Scotty's extraordinary short story, Winter Dreams. And the uh, biography will serve as a bit of an introduction to that, but you're not going to want to miss it. That's from my own theater company, Bad Mouth Theater Company. Uh, and we've got some great actors here to do that. So it's going to be fun. Um, so, Brad, you, uh, you're you not an actor, are you? You're not I'm, used to I'm, being on stage. I'm not an actor. No, I'm not used to being on you're stage gonna, at you're all. You're going to puke? No, I'm good. I'm good. It's okay. You got yeah. nerves? 
Not really. No. no. Okay. No. no, I'm All right. good. I'm good. Okay. It's good to see everybody. Right. I really do yeah. appreciate people coming out. Yeah. Okay. So this is fun. I'm oh, and here we go. Here, here yeah. it comes. Let's see who's. Yeah. All right. Come on in. Come on. The water's fine. Yeah. 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 I'm so glad to have you. Yeah. Pop on in. Yeah. Uh, this is so exciting. So I'm going to try to keep uh, housekeeping to a minimum. It's not going to be a usual Art of Darkness episode, but for people who don't know the podcast or who listening to, who are listening to this for the first time, this is part one of what we would call a core episode. So Art of Darkness is principally a biography, profiling podcast. We cover dead artists. We don't ambulance chase. They have to be dead for a year and a day. <laughs> That's right. Scotty uh, passes that test. Um and uh, he's been gone for a while. He's been gone for a while. Gone, yeah. but not forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course, we're in St. Paul, Minnesota at beautiful Waldman Brewery. And thank you, Waldman, for hosting. I, I encourage everybody. They're going to keep the bar open a little late for us tonight. So before we adjourn to the second venue, uh, just definitely go get a round or two, support Waldman, tip big. Uh, we really appreciate their mm -hmm. support. And it's an historic building. I think the building is from what, the 1850s? Is that right? 1850s? Incredible. Um, and for you Euro bros, don't don't mock us. Yeah, that's, that's, that's nothing. <laughs> for, for our fans in Cyprus. And I did. Uh, my wife and I were driving around yesterday. We went by the Fitzgerald house. It's like right over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, you're in it. Yeah, pretty much. You're yeah. in it. So it's exciting. Yeah, the map exciting. is not the territory. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to talk about. Except here. right now. Right. The map is the territory right on this episode. Yeah. And we we have a lively Telegram chat. If you if you can't get enough of us here, you're definitely gonna want to get into the Telegram. That's at t.me slash art of dark pod. And for the Telegram bros, I am officially giving Brad a pen. They'll understand what that means. Oh, wow. So thank you, Telegram. We love y'all. And uh, it's such a it's a very fine pen from it, from Jeff Bezos. Jeffbezos.com. Yep, yep, yep. Jeffbezos.com. Uh, that company started with books yeah. for what it's worth. Um, hmm. Okay, so housekeeping to a minimum. Uh, we're just gonna go up in his biography and we're gonna speed run this. It's gonna be fast um uh but so i gotta go back so we typically do core episodes and then we do dark rooms where we have guests come on and talk about the you know the subjects we've covered but the core episodes are really the heart of the podcast artofdarkpod.com um so let me see i just have my notes here uh winter dreams just do you want to describe winter dreams well i think we i think we just let it kind of happen honestly okay. winter dreams is it's well the one thing i'll say about it is f scott fitzgerald basically in order to keep up with uh financial obligations would write many 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 short stories very very quickly and it was actually a time in american history where it was lucrative to write a short story as opposed to now where um you have to you actually have to pay people to read them now so uh at, and and because of that f scott fitzgerald felt like often felt like he had given up some degree of his artistic integrity to write these short stories he had yeah he had um winter dreams uh in hindsight from Fitz fitzgerald's own perspective was really the only short story that he respected that he thought had sort of lived up to his own standards it's a banger and it's it's a pretty incredible short story um it is on you know we're talking about the great gatsby i'm sure a lot of people have read it most of us have been assigned it in high school uh and winter dreams is the one short story that is up to the standards of the great gatsby i would say um it's not quite 
the same story. It's shorter, obviously, but it's definitely it's definitely in that ballpark. So. And, and the scholars they talk about it as the Gatsby cluster. These are the stories that are proto Gatsby, and I think right. you'll see. And it's set right here in St. Paul, it Minnesota, yeah. in White Bear Lake. He calls yeah. it Black Bear in the story. Ah, so that's what yes, we're going to come up right. to. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and of course, well. So again, circling back to sort of the format of the pod, typically the way this works is I prepare a subject and then educate Brad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know and, that much. And, good. and Brad <laughs> prepares a subject and I, I add color commentary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah that's I get, right. That sounds right. I get educated too. Yeah. And, uh, but this episode, we're going to uh, share duty. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. We've never actually... Normally we don't even... It's right. interesting. It's, yeah. it's different for us. Yeah, it's so different. We're, but we're that's that's like the franchise of the show, right? Yeah. We're a couple of very online writers and we, we do one a month core episodes and we educate each. It's fun. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to work. People seem to like it. Uh, the other thing I'll say about Winter Dreams is that you can definitely uh, draw a line from Winter Dreams to Caddyshack. So I want you to watch. <laughs> that's right. I'm that's quite right. serious. I want you to watch out for that right. when, when right. the theater company reads it. Um, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Every episode we do, we do an extra 20 or 30 minutes. We call these uh, After Darks. The After Dark we're going to do at home in our usual way, but I got to tease the After Dark. Before I do, though, uh, another format thing for the show is that we usually ask the other hosts, what do you know about the, the fella? So I'm going to do that. Yeah. What did you know? What did I know? As an American novelist, as an American writer, what did you know about F. Scott Fitzgerald prior to prepping I, the show? I knew a fair, a fair bit about him. I mean, I knew that he was, uh, he's part of the, the early modernist can, canon. So he's a contemporary of Hemingway. He was a friend of Hemingway. Uh, uh, yeah. Frenemy. Frenemy. Frenemy is probably better put. Um, and, and Joyce and Virginia Woolf and Faulkner to a degree. Um, so he's part of that world, jazz age writer. Um, he died tragically young for, in his 40s, 44. Yes, that 44. sounds right. Yeah. Um, uh, Where was he from? He was from right here. He was from right, around, was from right around the corner. Let's go. Before we started talking about doing this episode, I honestly didn't know that. I always thought he was a New York guy, personally, because he's so affiliated with the East Coast. Um, jazz age writer. Um, Sort of super talented, but but gone from this world too early. Right. That's pretty much what I mean. Yeah. And I personally think he should have gone to the University of Minnesota, go Gophers. But as we we will see, he did not. He went to uh, Princeton. He was a Princeton yeah. man. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, on the After Dark, if you subscribe to the Patreon, uh, there, there's been like a running thing on the pod where we're like, we noticed recently that... Uh, We've covered like 50 core subjects. Mm -hmm. This is and number 50. Th what? This is number 50? Yeah. Wow, that, woo! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That rocks. Uh, and um, we've yet to do a foot guy. Guy who's in and, the guy who's in defeat. Yeah. This is art of darkness. <laughs> this is art of darkness, as far as we know. Yeah, you know, and I and I I'm casting no judgments or aspersions. If that's I mean, your for, thing. That's your thing. That's your thing. I respect that. It was Fitzgerald's Fitzgerald thing. Fitzgerald's a foot guy. Fitzgerald's a foot guy. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk about that on the After Dark. We'll touch on it a little bit for the, the main episode here. I have footnotes. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Uh, <laughs> you have any idea how long I've been waiting to say that? Uh, okay, so it, just rolling on here, we're going to read a little bit of Gatsby, Brad being the prose stylist. Yeah, okay. So hang on, though, before yeah. I do. Um, it, Fitzgerald was a theater kid. 
I'm afraid to announce. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I just have to say, the what are we referencing for the podcast? I've got Wikipedia. We got to blast through this really fast, part yeah. one. So I'm going to read a lot of Wikipedia, but I have two books. Uh, this podcast wouldn't exist if it weren't for the biographers. We are not biographers. We are. It's a profiling podcast. So I've got uh, Scott Fitzgerald, a biography by Jeffrey Meyer, and I have some sort of epic grandeur, the life of F. Scott Fitzgerald from Matthew Riccoli. Riccoli. So mm -hmm. uh, I'll be referencing those during the recording. Mm -hmm. All right. So before we read Gatsby, just we're here. We're in this building. This building was here when F. Scott was tootling around mm -hmm. when he was when he was growing up when, when he, he was, was a little boy he probably ran with that like that wheel mm -hmm. with the stick thing yeah like a little pinwheel yeah. pinwheel yeah, yeah. that's yeah. good <laughs> i like that actually i don't know if that set would come down the hill oh, that's to true. be honest <laughs> be uh but in any case you know he was here so let's go back into the misty past yeah we're here he was born in saint paul minnesota in 1896 like practically the frontier, just the, 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 he at one point he described it after having gone East and coming back as the ragged edge of the world. And of course that's, we're so much better than that now, aren't we? Now that was before Target, right? They didn't have Target at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Okay. okay. Yeah. I'm no, to, you got it. Trying to locate myself. Yep. Yep. Okay. You're good. You're doing great. Good. So let's just to, to place ourselves as per like, it's so easy, I think, for us as Minnesotans. I know we have some Wisconsin people here, too, so we let them in. Uh, that's fine. The, <laughs> the keg of America is well represented here. Like uh, and But great. So we take him for granted. You take Fitzgerald for granted. Gatsby, that story in cinema, in theater, has been abused and misunderstood. And it's very, very difficult to represent which is one of the reasons why when we do Winter Dreams, we're, you're going to hear the story. It's not some wild, we're not Winter Dreams in space. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Winter Dreams. So let's hear from the great novel, Gatsby. Why are we even talking about this okay, guy now? Right. And this is, yeah, this is a great passage from the great Gatsby. <clears throat> one of my most vivid memories is of coming back West from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at six o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends already caught up in their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That, and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances and the matchings of invitations. Are you going to the Ordways, the Herseys, the Schultzes? And the long green tickets clasped, clasped tight in our gloved hands. And last, the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West, not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells and the frosty dark and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the Caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. 
I see now that this has been a story of the West after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners. And perhaps we possess some deficiency in common, which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Hey, Scotty. Very well read, very well read Brad. You yeah. never moved east, did you? No, you did. You went out there. The, the Finger Lakes, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the North Finger North Lakes State region. North. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, that slaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to you know, wax on too much, but this is one of the reasons I think they continually get Gatsby wrong is because it's a Western story. It just happens to be set out east. Yes. Uh, so here we go. We beat on boats against the current born back ceaselessly into the biography of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, <clears throat> that, that was maybe that was a horrible mistake to have you read that up top because that I, we're not going to top that. Yeah, I just mogged you. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was my idea, too. Um, <clears throat> uh, he was born on September 24th, 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota, to a middle class Catholic family, the one true faith. Francis, uh, yes, Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald was named after his distant cousin, Francis Scott Key, who wrote in 1814 the lyrics for the American national anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. Um, I've got, so I've got a little bit of reading from the book here. This is how the podcast works, by the way. If you don't like it, I don't know why we're here. It's pretty, uh, I, I, it's pretty I hope you enjoy show. it. This is pretty yeah. much the show. Yeah. Uh, we can't just read Wikipedia the entire time. Let me go here. You can do that at home. <laughs> so let's read a little bit from this great biography. Uh, and I'm reading from some sort of epic grandeur. Philip F. McQuillan was an exemplar of the American dream that his grandson, F. Scott Fitzgerald, would respond to complexly in his fiction. Born in County Fermanagh, Ireland, he moved in 1857 from Illinois to St. Paul, Minnesota, where he worked as a bookkeeper. Two years later, at 25, he opened his own small business in the general line. What does that mean? I'm not sure. Like a general saying. store, probably. Probably. It yeah. Sounds like it. Well, yeah. yeah when, the, when the gold rush hit Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1860, uh, he married. Well, you want to be the person selling the shelves. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's that is, is the truth. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that's right when this was built. That's quite something to think about where we're sitting right now. Mm. In 1860, he married Louisa Allen, the daughter of an Irish immigrant carpenter. By 1862, he was a grocery wholesaler. Prospering with the post-Civil War expansion of the territory, McQuillan became one of the most substantial businessmen in St. Paul and a benefactor of the Catholic Church. I'm not going to say it again, but as McQuillan... Bupre and company. One thing to know about um, the cities here, and I don't know if I'll cover it, but the French Catholics were considered quite uh, fancy. Like it was not so uh, déclassé to be French Catholic, whereas the Irish and even the Swedes, who were of course not Catholics, there was a little there was a little class system here. Mm. Uh, and of course, we have nothing like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, in any, in any case, uh, they grew to $2 million a year in billings. And I think that's that's like probably at the time. I don't know, but that's yeah. a lot of money now. Yeah, they, um, yeah that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, his home was an impressive three-story Victorian structure with a couple of, I think that's it. Um, and yeah, and he owned the building uh, at 3rd and Wabash, known as the McQuillan Block. 
Uh, when he died in 1877 at 43 of Bright's disease complicated by tuberculosis. Now, normally we would look up the disease. Oh, Bright's disease oh. is a kidney. Is a kidney oh, it's disease. a kidney disease. Mm -hmm. This is why we do the podcast together. Yeah. 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 I cover the nervous system yeah. <laughs> and, and right. mental it's what, health. It's what Emily Dickinson died. Oh, very good, Brett. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, McQuillan left uh, the then considerable estate of uh, $266,000 roughly, which at that time, again, would have been staggering. Uh, there were five surviving children. The eldest was Mary Molly, born in 1860. Her father's success provided Molly with an education at the Visitation Convent in St. Paul and Manhattanville in New York, and she went to Europe four times. That's wild. Mm. Uh, so you know, there's something going on. I'm just trying to give the background of the family on both sides. So. Um, Almost nothing is known about Scott's paternal grandfather, Michael Fitzgerald, who may have kept a general store in Maryland. He married Cecilia Ashton Scott of Glenmary, Rockville, Maryland, and died in 1855 when their son Edward was two years old. Cecilia's family could be traced back to the 17th century in Maryland, to the first Scott's, Keys, Ridgeley's, and Dorsey's. The Scott's sympathies were Southern. Mary Surratt, Edward's first cousin, was hanged for conspiracy in Lincoln's assassination. We're going to touch on that in the uh, After Dark as well. If you don't know the story of Mary Surratt, it's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, she was, um, I think she was an innkeeper. And uh, she she was like, I think they hanged like four people. And oh, hanging sure. a woman uh, at that time was, well, that was a, quite a serious thing. Um, yeah. She did not take it well. You can imagine. No, I mean, yeah, who could blame her? Really? Yeah. yeah. By chance, I just ended up on her Wikipedia profile like, yeah. Two months ago and then this popped up huh you got have to imagine what i do at home <laughs> <laughs> just wake up what what um uh edward attended georgetown college uh heavy and then went west to seek his fortune as so many people did um i'm gonna go on a little bit because i think this background's good but we're gonna have to blast at mm -hmm. some point here yeah. um edward fitzgerald and molly mcquillan probably met in saint paul city of light city of lovers uh, they were married on the 12th of February, 1890 in Washington, D.C., where Molly's mother had a house. Um, that Molly was married in Washington may indicate something about the McQuillan's uncertain social position in St. Paul. Her father had been a respected figure in the city, and there was little anti-Catholic bias because the, lo the local aristocrats were descended from the early French Catholic settlers, but the Irish were regarded as <laughs> common, a step above the Swedes. How? <laughs> oh, damn. Wow, we're moving up in the world. She's going in. It's coming in hot. <laughs> Why are you saying? What's your neighborhood that you're your Airbnb? It's called uh, Swede Hollow. Swede I believe. Hollow. Yeah. yeah. They've all been looking at me askance. Yeah, start start yeah right, right, right. Yeah. Um, however, Governor Merriam of Minnesota attended the wedding reception. Um, so it goes on and we could, we could, you know, I, this is a fabulous uh, biography. I'm going to read a little bit more from this. There's a particular letter that he has. I want to make sure I don't miss it. It must be on another page. But the boy was named F. Scott Fitzgerald when he was born. A choice and it indicates, well, first I have to say something. Um, before he was born, he had, two, he had, his mother had two children prior to him. Both died in childhood from disease. Right. So, again, this is something we come up against on this podcast over and over, how different it was 100, 150 years ago. And um, 
Yeah, there's siblings, you know, what, 10% or 20% just, of them just, are just not going would just to be die. Yeah. yeah, and just go, okay. And so that was really, really uh, a big part of his childhood. Okay, so he was uh, named Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, a choice that indicates something about his parents' ambitions for their son. The name implied a closer connection than existed. Scott Fitzgerald, he was never called Francis or Frank, was Francis Scott Key's second cousin three times removed. Philip Key, <laughs> Philip Key, founder of the Maryland family and Francis Scott Key's uh, great grandfather was Scott's great, 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 how many? Four, four greats grandfather. Hmm. Scott was baptized on the 6th of October by Father John T. Harrison at the, the Cathedral of St. Paul, right up the hill there. Um, his first credited word was up at 10 months. Cool. Despite his hefty size at birth, 10 pounds, 6 ounces, the baby was subject to colds and chest problems that caused his mother to fear she would lose him, too. You can about imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was... 10 pounds, 6 ounces, that's a big baby. That's a chunky baby. Yeah, he's not a big guy, either. He's, he's we're out here baby-maxing. Yeah, yeah so. we're baby-maxing in St. Paul. <laughs> yeah, they had two daughters who died in 1896 at the ages of one and three. Can you imagine? I have children right now at those ages. I would... I don't even know what I would do. I would be the I, the podcast. We'd have to take a break. <laughs> have to take a, yeah, we would probably take a break. Yeah, we'd take, take, take a little sabbatical. I think that's understandable. Yeah, yeah, yeah no yeah. doubt. Um, oh, geez. It's, it's called the art of darkness. Uh, Fitzgerald later described his mother as half insane with pathological nervous worry. Oh, that's good. Love that's you, mom. Good. Send her a card. Yeah. Oh, boy. One of the causes for her anxiety was her husband's business career. Uh, Scott Fitzgerald later became convinced that his father had never recovered from the Civil War and that its disappointments had sapped his ambition. And his father ran like a rattan store, the American Rattan and Willow Works. Anyway, we'll get to it. Yeah. Um, oh, and just to be clear, I won't be talking quite so much like the latter half of this. I'm going to cover kind of the front and then Brad's yeah, going to get into yeah. the, the early work. Um, okay. So here we go. Uh, yeah, he opened his father. Uh, he what? He opened a wicker furniture manufacturing business. Is there a lot of money in wicker at the time? I yeah, mean, yeah, you didn't sure. He was the wicker man. He was the wicker man. That's right. He was the local. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't end out well for him either. Yeah, yeah. That's a good movie. <laughs> okay, I just want to keep this thing on the rails. Um, so, yeah, we've got it. So this is the letter um, that Scott himself wrote to describe his origins and his attitude toward his origins. Uh, <clears throat> this is long after he first said up. He wrote this letter. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I am half black Irish and half old American stock with the usual exaggerated ancestral pretensions. <laughs> The black Irish half of my family had the money and looked down upon the Maryland side of the family who had and really had that certain series of reticences and obligations that go under the poor old shattered word breeding, modern form inhibitions. So being born in that atmosphere of crack, wisecrack and countercrack, I developed a two cylinder inferiority complex. Should maybe said crack, crack. I don't even yeah. know. Yeah. So if I were elected King of Scotland tomorrow after graduating from Eton, Magdalene to the guards with an embryonic history which tied me to the Plantagenets, I would still be a parvenu. 
I spent my youth in alternate, alternately crawling in front of the kitchen maids and insulting the great. I suppose this is just a confession of being a Gale, uh, though I have known many Irish who have not been afflicted by this intense social self-consciousness. <laughs> if you are interested in college, a typical gesture on my part would have been for being at Princeton and belonging to one of its snootiest clubs. I would be capable of going to Podunk on a visit and being absolutely booed and overawed by its social system, not from timidity, but simply because of an inner necessity of starting my life and my self-justification over again at scratch in what whatever new environment I may be thrown. Mm. I love that phrase, the two-cylinder inferiority complex. Yes. Well, and you can see, I feel like you can see a lot of his wit in there. You can see some of that in The Great Gatsby, but in his early short stories and in the first two novels, there's a lot more of that wit and playfulness that is clear in that letter. Word kind of word play and you know, I yeah. like that. It's a great letter. Yeah, there's an obscure book that you can get. Well, it's not that obscure, but he had like a he kept like a little childhood diary. He liked to keep lists. Mm -hmm. You know, these are my friends, and this is how I rank my uh, friend, and da-da-da. He and we're gonna get to it here, but he had a real serious problem with theory of mind. Like he didn't he to his own uh, by his own admission didn't even realize that other people existed until he was like 15 right <laughs> um and i don't know if you've ever been around someone like that or if you've ever been somebody like that <laughs> but uh it, yeah it makes it really hard mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so let's see here one year after fitzgerald's birth his father's wicker furniture manufacturing business failed mm -hmm. and the family moved to buffalo new york don't worry we're coming back to st paul they yeah. come back don't yeah. worry uh, where his father joined Procter and Gamble. That's a good trade. That's, That's a good, good business. That's a good yeah. company. Mm -hmm. As a salesman, uh, Fitzgerald spent the first decade of his childhood primarily in Buffalo with a brief interlude in Syracuse, between, or as they say, Syracuse. Have you ever heard that? They say Syracuse. More. Say Syracuse. Yeah, yeah, I say Syracuse. Yeah. That's all right. Between January 1901 and September 1903, he does have a sister, a younger sister. Um, she won't figure heavily in this sort of rapid fire episode that we're going to do. But there is a, an amusing moment where he he writes her a letter when she's coming of age, explaining to her how to get a man. Oh, and it's full of you can about imagine. Fitzgerald. Yeah, I can imagine. It. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. He was a, a original sort of. He's like an online uh, yeah, yeah, niche yeah. micro celebrity well, yeah, for his own. He was and he 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 liked the ladies and he liked them. Frankly, uh, if they didn't have too many thoughts in their head. Mm, so, yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Winter dreams is Winter dreams is excellent, but it's quite scathing, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it, I don't know if it passes the Bechtel test. Not no, that we not, not that we care too much, but um, so anyway. So his parents sent him to two Catholic schools on Buffalo's west side. Oh, the Buffalo, the west side of Buffalo. Mm. For, I don't know. If that's I don't know what that means. I have no I idea. <laughs> uh, first Holy Angels Convent and then Narden Academy. And to put you in place, we're in 1903 to 1908. As a boy, Fitzgerald was described by his peers as unusually intelligent with a keen interest in literature, but he was narcissistic, as we'll see. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to blast through some of this stuff. Procter and Gamble fired his uh, father in March of 1908. Was that because his father was boozing? I mean, that's not the impression that I got. Okay. Um, I think I think that his father was just the way Fitzgerald described it uh, is that he had a premonition, and his mother had given him a, a quarter, and for some reason he he felt compelled to give the quarter back to his mother, and then the phone rang, and 
he just knew something had happened and his father had lost his job. Mm. And he described that as just not only had his father's business failed, he couldn't even hold this job. Right. And uh, his father was just sort of a broken man after mm. that. And uh, when you when you pair that with the uh, the inferiority complex that we talked about um, earlier, you can see why Fitzgerald would feel motivated to conquer the world. Yeah, in addition, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In addition to the dead older sisters. Um, but I've got some good news for you. Uh, <laughs> Dad lost a job. And because of that, the family returned to St. Paul. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> we're coming. We're back. Um, and his father, his father was an alcoholic. So yeah, that probably contributed to the, to the job loss. I don't, I don't, I don't recall reading any details, right, right. but in any no. case, hard to hold down a job at uh, Procter, a good firm like Procter and Gamble when you're in the bottle. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although his father was now destitute, his mother's inheritance supplemented the family income and allowed them to continue living a middle-class lifestyle. Uh, Fitz was active as a young playwright. He was a theater kid. Um, I've got more reading to do, but boy, we don't have time. This, let me just keep going through the, <laughs> through the Wikipedia and we're going to try to, we're going to get you to, we're going to get you to have Fitzgerald grow up a little bit. And then we're going to get him into Princeton um, because that's, it's a good school. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah I've heard that. <laughs> But he, you know, he had, he, he could have gone to the University of Minnesota. Well, oh, really? Yeah. We're going to come to that. Hmm. Yeah. I was preparing some like kayfabe where I'd like take my hat off and like storm off. You know? <laughs> I don't think I'll do that. Um, Fitzgerald attended St. Paul Academy from 1908 to 1911, where he performed poorly. I want to get, let me get a little bit more. Where are you? I always ask you this, Brad, when I got to find my pages. Yeah. Where are you at with Scotty right now? Well, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic. I think it's kind of charming and funny that he's at this point that he's a narcissist. So, so in preparation for this, I read his first two novels, which I hadn't been very familiar with. I'd read The Great Gatsby multiple times, but his first two novels, This Side of Paradise and The Beautiful and the Dam. And you they're they're well done they're very they're very well crafted they're interesting they're kind of funny we're going to talk more about them but they are kind of written by nar a narcissist like a little bit you can kind of tell that this guy like is you know they're about somebody who thinks they're the smartest person in the world and they're just waiting for the rest of the world to realize it yeah, yeah. <laughs> damn yeah yeah he sounds like he's on to something yeah <laughs> Um, this yeah. writing writing advice from Art of Darkness. Uh, I do have something. This chapter is called. I'm still reading from uh, the Broccoli biography. This, uh, this chapter is called "The Summit Avenue Boyhood." The Fitzgeralds returned to St. Paul in the summer of 1908 when Scott was almost 12. Scott and Annabelle, his sister, moved in with their McQuillan grandmother at 294 Laurel Avenue. Their parents lived with a friend, Dr. John Fulton, a few blocks away on Summit Avenue, just up the hill. When Louisa McQuillan went abroad in April 1909, the family was reunited in her apartment until they took a house at 514 Holly Avenue in September. Thereafter, the Fitzgeralds moved almost annually in the Summit Avenue section. The temporary separation of the Fitzgerald family may have been dictated by financial problems. In St. Paul, Edward unprosperously operated, operated as a wholesale grocery salesman from his McQuillan brother-in-law's real estate office. You can almost feel the vibe of that. Mm. Oof. Uh, Scott became familiar with his mother's refrain, if it weren't for your grandfather McQuillan, where would we be now? 
Oh, poor dad. Uh, Molly was not a domineering personality, however, and there does not seem to have been unusual discord in the Fitzgerald household. As she became reconciled to her husband's lack of business acumen, her hopes for her bright and handsome son increased. Although she was not strong or uh, ambitious enough to direct Scott's life, she spoiled him and contributed to his sense of uniqueness. But she did not encourage his literary ambitions, hoping that he would become a successful businessman. I mean, you could sell wicker, you could sell rattan, you could sell groceries. I mean, why? Why would why would you want to write a book when you could write? Yeah. Um, but we will see, I think, with Winter Dreams, when when we come to this, how he's navigating class and ascending out of your sort of middle class trappings into something greater is a, th is a thing that would truly obsess him. Mm -hmm. um, I think we talk about, people talk about the Horatio Alger story. Well, Fitzgerald described the American reality in a very, very acute and powerful way that's still germane now. Like, I know we throw that book at, well, I don't, but the, the public schools, the schools throw that book at teenagers. It's... It, it still should be part of the canon, I think. Yeah. It's, it's totally American. Yeah. yeah. Nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let me see here. Um, her opposition, mom, her opposition to Scott's literary ambitions may have prompted her destru destruction of his juvenilia. Oh, mom. and this, mom. And this is, uh, <laughs> this is Scott. My mother did me the, the disservice of throwing away all but two of my very young efforts. Way back at 12 and 13, and later I found that the surviving fragments had more quality than some of the stuff written in the tightened up days of seven and eight years later. Oof. As a young man, Edward Fitzgerald, his father, had collaborated on an unpublished novel, and he praised Scott's literary efforts. But he seems to have wanted his son to become an army officer. I love that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love how the officer's like, you're going to sell groceries. You're gonna, yeah, right. yeah, you're gonna run a golf course. You're gonna go into the army. Right, and, right. Yeah. Oh man, that's rough. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's, there's not. Uh, we don't have their correspondence with the parents, and he did. He rarely spoke of of his parents. So we don't have a lot of sources around that. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to talk about the money a little bit because it's. I think it's important. The amount of Molly's capital is unknown, but there were increments. Uh, as pieces of family property were sold. See, that's money. If, if, the, if the historians are like, when they were selling pieces of their property. Right, right. Yeah, that'll give you a sense. Um, after the death of Louisa McQuillan in 1913, Molly's income of five or $6,000 a year afforded the Fitzgeralds a comfortable life in the Summit Avenue area. Let's go. Summit Avenue, now regarded as the best preserved Victorian residential boulevard in America, runs west. Well, everybody here knows this. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but, yeah, but we have people out here in podcast lands. Let me just yeah. finish this paragraph. It runs west from the Cathedral of St. Paul, four and a half miles to the Mississippi River. Uh, and it goes on and describes uh, the James J. Hill House. And it, but it's an incredible neighborhood. If you have not visited scenic St. Paul, beautiful, historic St. Paul, you should consider doing it. Uh, maybe when we do Art of Darkness Live again, you come into town. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it was, a good airport. Was, <laughs> yeah, the MSP is like my, one of my – it's an incredible it airport. We have an incredible airport in, in, in uh, the Twin Cities. But, uh, you know, so they uh, – uh, they just lived in apartments or rented rented houses in the area. But so it sounds like they were trying to maintain that Summit Avenue sort of vibe, but they couldn't quite afford it. So you're kind of staying in a room that's yes doing what you can to maintain. Oh, we live we're living on Summit Avenue. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're like sharing a sharing half of a flat. Correct. And I'm going to read this because that's Brad. You're you're predicting what I'm going to read. 
And in a neighborhood of imposing houses known by their owners' names, Scott was keenly aware of his father's failure. He was Molly McQuillan's boy, not Edward Fitzgerald's son. He played with the children of the well-to-do, E.L. Hershey, the lumberman, and Charles W. Ames of the West Publishing Company and C. Milton Griggs, the wholesaler. But he felt that he was an outsider. Moreover, he was embarrassed by his mother, who dressed carelessly and sometimes seemed mildly confused. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. I've been there. <laughs> Let's go easy on mom. Um, when Molly, well, it goes on. Um, yeah, let's read this. When Molly died in 1936, skipping around in time here, Fitzgerald told his sister, mother and I never had anything in common except a relentless, stubborn quality. But when I saw all that, this, it turned me inside out, realizing how unhappy her temperament made her. Indifferent to society, Molly spent much of her time reading sentimental and religious books. There were few Catholics among Scott's playmates. He later remarked that his friends thought Catholics secretly drilled in their churches to overthrow the government. They do. Don't, we, don't we? we can't say, no. we can't talk no. about that. Okay. <laughs> That's a secret. That's a good idea. <laughs> don't fed post on Maine. Yeah, That's not good. Revealing your power levels. I went to a state school. Yeah. I'm on board. I'm on board with the program. All right, cool. We're getting to Princeton. We we're are. getting to Princeton. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna have time for we're definitely have time for Brad's exegesis yeah. on the writing. It's yeah. gonna be exciting. Um, uh, Fitzgerald attended St. Paul Academy from 1908 to 1911, where he performed poorly. He was never a good student. Uh, you know. It's funny how often we've covered all these subjects. How often they're poor students. Kubrick, all the time. Kubrick yeah. was like a D student. Yeah, a lot of them are not very good, remarkable students at all. Yeah, it's just interesting to note that. Sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. How'd you do in school? I did good. So yeah. I think I, ah, that's why I think my artistic career is doomed, unfortunately. <laughs> and now you're a podcaster. <laughs> um, in 1911, Fitzgerald's parents sent him to the Newman School. Uh, and this is a, an abrupt leap. A Catholic prep school in Hackensack, New Jersey, like 10 miles outside of Manhattan. So he was sent to boarding school out east. He was kind of ready for this. He kind of wanted it. And this this school was, I think, maybe the only or like one of the only Catholic schools that was designed to compete with the that Eastern constellation. Eaton, not e and... do we have Eaton? Well, not Eaton. Yeah, sorry. no, yes, like Ex Exeter and right. those those, those fancy that set pants of schools that are designed yeah. to put you into an Ivy. Yeah, yeah, the the Ivy League feeder schools. Yeah. 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 Um, so he went to one of those at Newman. Father Sigourney Fay recognized his literary potential and encouraged him to become a writer. So that's exciting. I got, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna rapid fire get him of age and get him into Princeton here. Uh, and he dreamed of Princeton. He was absolutely fixated on the idea that he would go there. And you know, back in the day too, I think you know now rather famously the schools and the Ivy League schools, they all kind of have, move in ideological lock, lockstep. I think that's pretty understood. There's probably, there's some nuance, but Princeton was was considered to be a, a more conservative oh. and a little more, yeah, maybe a little more stately. And, um, you know, I remember like uh, in, in American Psycho, 
You know, it was part of the Yale, that Yale oh, thing, right. that whole okay. Yale thing. You know what I mean? I'm sure those nuances still exist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the University of Minnesota is considered to be very, very classy. Yeah. And whereas the University of Wisconsin oh. is just, I feel so like I'm well. tangled up in a rivalry that I don't even understand. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it had to be done. Okay. It had to Fair be enough. done. Yeah. I like Goldie's got badgers, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh no! Oh. oh, it's brutal. Tremendous. Okay, good, good. Yeah, Goldie body slams Bucky dot GIF. Uh, we have fun on Out of Darkness. Um, we really do. It's a good time. Um, so let's see here. Yeah, I've got this business. Yeah, here I'm going to read. Um. With his head full of Owen Johnson's prep school and college stories, Scott arrived at Newman in September and promptly established himself as the most unpopular boy in school. He was bossy and boastful. He irritated the teachers and students. He was regarded as a coward and a bully. He humiliated himself by running from a tackle in a football scrimmage. He was rebuffed when he tried to join groups of boys and criticized when he kept to himself. He accumulated conduct demerits and did poorly in his studies. His courses at Newman included English, history, mathematics, Latin, French, and science. Mm -hmm. None of Scott's teachers made an impression on him. You played football, right? I did. Yeah. I did not. I didn't run away from any tackles. No. You <laughs> I would have been the kid running away from you. Right. Problems. You yeah, know, sure, yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, Again, Scott sought distinction and self-justification through writing. His first known contribution to the school magazine, Newman News, creative, that's very creative, mm -hmm. was, you see what they did there? Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. Was a 36-line poem, football. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That really, no, you know, it, there's no exclamation point on that. I kind of read it with one. Yeah, should be, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's just my broadcast. Yeah, right. yeah that's the case. <laughs> um, that was in the Christmas 1911 issue written after he had disgraced himself on the football field. I'm going to read it. stupid anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, here's, uh, I guess, a stanza. Um, now they're ready. Now they're waiting. Now he's going to place the ball. There you hear the referee's whistle. As of old, the batons fall. Wow. Wow. Oh, damn. Man. Wow. Keep writing that poetry, those yeah. kids. Yeah. You know, hey, you're fine. Um, everybody's written that bad poetry as a kid. He later wrote about the circumstances behind the poem. I remember the desolate ride in the bus back to the train and the desolate ride back to school with everybody thinking I had been yellow on the occasion, when actually I was just distracted and sorry for that opposing end. That's the truth. I've been afraid plenty of times, but that wasn't one of them. The point is, it inspired me to write a poem. He says poem. He right. definitely says poem. The point is, it inspired me to write a poem for the school paper, which made me as big a hit with my father as if I had become a football hero. Oh, that's sweet. He's a kid here. We got to go easy. Yeah. So when I went home that Christmas vacation, it was in my mind that if you weren't able to function in action, you might as well be able to tell about it. <laughs> Space department that rocks. 
Why did you become a writer? <laughs> to explain away my failures. Right, exactly. Why else would you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. He goes on, but this is an incredible insight. It he is. says, you know, uh, because you felt the same intensity. It was a backdoor way out of facing reality. Mm -hmm. That is one reason to write. Yeah, well, yeah we probably and this has been the Art of Darkness yeah. podcast. <laughs> Got to go home and think about that for a month. Um, at Newman, Scott felt the lure of Princeton. He preserved the ticket stub for the 4th, 4th November 1911 Princeton-Harvard game in his scrapbook with the caption, Sam White decides me for Princeton. Fitzgerald got the name wrong, and Sanford White starred in Princeton's 8-6 to six victory. I'm trying to do that. That was different. Yeah, it's like a baseball score. Um, with a 95-yard touchdown run after a blocked kick. That's exciting. Because it uh, because it came in the first Princeton-Harvard game since 1896, the upset was regarded as one of Princeton's great athletic triumphs. Um, and this is important here. Another factor in Princeton's attraction was the Triangle Club, founded by Booth Tarkington in 93. Every year, the club produced an original musical comedy, which it took on tour during the Christmas vacation. Um, they would they, the, the Princeton Triangle Club would... Like like it says, it would take it on tour. They would go to Chicago and like Chicago would fly Princeton colors for the day because the Triangle Club was in town for their, you know, it's just yeah, different time. Yeah. yeah, big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when uh, Scott saw his published libretto for His Honor, the Sultan in 1909 Triangle Show, he began trying to imitate it, leaning heavily on Gilbert and Sullivan. So he was definitely a theater kid. Um, all right. So very good. Uh, he would go and he would spend time in New York around this period. Of course, he's one of the great writers like of New York. You even thought that he might have been from yeah. out there. Um, yeah, I already got the lure to Princeton. I just want to make sure. He would mm. He would continually, even when he was in name, he would continue to try and make things happen in the theater. Yeah. Never quite caught on, really. There was the limited success. He did have a play called, I think, Something in Pink, which the entire thing was a woman in a bathtub making like lewd references, metaphorical references to her body. Sounds like basically the entire play. <laughs> Bad Mouth Theater Company coming to you in 2024. <laughs> it sounds like a good part. Yeah, I'm looking at, okay, all right, we'll leave that. Uh, that sounds like Beckett. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah but Beck not quite. Not quite, yeah. not quite not the quite level Beckett. of Beckett. Okay, yeah. very good. Um, all right, so we're gonna get him here to Princeton. Um, and got to talk a little bit about his drinking, right? Um, despite the heady events of 1912 and 13, Fitzgerald summarized that year in his ledger with reward in fall for work of previous summer, a better year, but not happy. The case of his unhappiness is unknown. The cause, excuse me. Um, perhaps it was a feeling that he was marking time at Newman and that his destiny required a larger setting. Scott and his friends had experimented with drugstore Sherry in St. Paul. In, 1913, <laughs> in 1913, he began to try stronger, uh, stronger liquors at Newman. He had his first whiskey in March, and in April, uh, he wrote in his ledger that he was tight as Susquehanna. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but that's pretty funny. Yeah. Mm. 
His act, I, I have been. People who know me know I have been, yeah. <laughs> his academic uh, situation remains shaky. His Newman School record shows that he failed four courses in two years. I just want to read these courses. They're too funny. English A, he got a C. English B, a B. Ancient History, A. English History, C. Algebra 1, an E. Algebra 2, C. Plain Geometry, B. Solid Geometry, B. Latin Grammar, D. Latin Composition, B. Caesar, E. Oh, and I studied Latin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caesar. And I'm going to say Kikoro because I studied Latin. Oh. Kikoro, C. Yeah. Virgil, D. French, A, B. French, B, E. Physics, E. And I think those E's are failures. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. All right. And bringing us to Princeton. It and is, then he gets mm. into Princeton. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's how it works now. <laughs> yeah. You just fail everything. Right. You literally need like a 4.3 right. GPA. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. Nice. I personally saved an orphan from being <laughs> run over by a train. <laughs> right. So yeah. Try again next year. Only one orphan? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It is normal, almost obligatory, for literary geniuses to get poor grades in math and science, but Scott <laughs> did not distinguish himself in his English courses either. At the, he did the one better. Yeah. He'll fail his English Yeah, I'll just fail everything. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the term, he took the examination for Princeton, on which he did a little cribbing. The entrance exams included French, three exams in Latin, two exams in English, three exams in algebra and plane geometry, and other exams in history, mathematics, and science. They left out the exam where, like, your your father left them a building. Right. That's yeah. the important part. Um, he left Newman with medals for elio elocution. El el did I say that right? No, you did not you see, yeah, el elocution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you don't know if I was joking or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and track and returned to St. Paul to await word of his acceptance by Princeton. Mm. Uh, a lot of kids going through that right now, actually. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes. Mm. Uh, during the summer of 1913, Scott wrote his third play uh, for the, the Elizabethan Dramatic Club, Coward. He was writing little plays, and they would tour them up. They'd go up to White Bear Lake, and it was a big event, you know. Cool. And yeah, cool. the, the play was called Coward, a Civil War melodrama about a reluctant Southern soldier who proves his courage. <sighs> he played one of the leads and enjoyed the whole business of rehearsals and backstage crises because he always liked being in charge. Coward, being subtweeted by this, Coward was warmly received by the local press at its performance at the St. Paul YWCA for the benefit of the Baby Welfare Association on the 29th of August of 1913. And a second performance was given upon urgent demand at the White Bear Yacht Club on the 2nd of September. Uh, Fitzgerald captioned the reviews in his scrapbook, the great event and enter success. Ah, <laughs> uh, what a sweetheart. Yeah. Okay. And here we go. The death of grandmother McQuillan that summer solved the problem of Scott's college tuition. Ah, yes. When she received her share of her mother's estate, Molly may have had as much as $125,000 in capital, which we have to assume is it's multiple like millions. 12 times or 15 times. Yeah, $1.5 to $2 million. Mm -hmm. It'll be $3 million next year. Um, <laughs> uh, the idea that he might, and I'm just reading this for the first time, the idea that he might be sent to the University of Minnesota to save money had filled Scott with dismay. And, and he was not attracted by the offer of his maiden aunt, Annabelle McQuillan, to underwrite his education at Catholic Georgetown University. Go Gophers. Mm. Come on, Scott. It was, ah, he doesn't get it. Um, it, was, it was Princeton or nothing. 
<laughs> the other big three universities failed to exert the same pull on his emotions. And this is him. I don't know why, but I think of all, all Harvard men as sissies, like I used to be. And all Yale men is wearing big blue sweaters and smoking pipes. <laughs> I think of Princeton as being lazy and good looking and aristocratic. <laughs> and that's what I want to be, is what he say. <laughs> he said, you know, like a spring day. Princeton was like a spring day. And no mention of what he thought of the U. Yeah. Damn. Uh, Princeton was the Southerners Ivy League college and Fitzgerald thought of himself as a courtesy Southerner but <laughs> by virtue of his father's okay. pedigree. Dang. All right. I know, I know what's happening, Brad. I, we got to blast through. Yeah. So let's go. Yeah, um, we're going to blast through biography. Um, well, at Princeton, Fitzgerald shared a room and became longtime friends with John Biggs Jr., who later helped the author find a home in Delaware. As the semesters passed, he formed close friendships with classmates Edmund Wilson and John Peel Bishop, both of whom would later aid his literary career. Being friends with Edmund, Edmund Wilson is a good deal. Who was he? Well, he was a major literary, not, not a writer, but a critic, reviewer, and sort of tastemaker. Right. So to be like his college homie yeah. could not possibly. Kind of like us. Yeah. yeah. Right. If it, you could please. Right. Get some styles uh, in society. <laughs> I, could, I could ride those coattails. <laughs> We're doing it together, Brad. We're doing it together. Um, that's very funny. Yeah. Uh, but didn't didn't Fitzgerald uh, later introduce Hemingway to Max Perkins? I believe that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Um, determined to be a successful writer, Fitzgerald wrote stories and poems for the Princeton Triangle Club and the Princeton Tiger and the Nassau, uh, Nassau Lit. Um just to be clear, he was he was uh, welcomed into Princeton like conditionally, but apparently like forty or fifty or even sixty percent of the class was sort of welcomed in that way. It was a big deal for him to be, um, you know, a Catholic at Princeton. This was not uh, common, and from the West, and he he really struggled with with that. Um, I want to make sure I get what we need. Uh, during his sophomore year, an 18-year-old Fitzgerald returned home to St. Paul during Christmas break, where he met and fell in love with the 16-year-old Chicago debutante, Ginerva King, one of the so-called big four debutantes of Chicago. Yeah. She has a Wikipedia page as a debutante. Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, that's what they call it. She's one of the big four. There are apparently three others. Were that, like that four. year? Yes. Holy. Yeah. Wow. That was a big deal. The debutante industry was, sure. was a big deal back okay. then. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The couple began a romantic relationship spanning several years. She would become his literary model for the characters of Isabella Borges in the, in the Side of Paradise. Am I saying it right? There we go. So, yeah. Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby and many others. While Fitzgerald attended Princeton, Genova attended Westover, a Connecticut women's school. He visited her at Westover until her expulsion for flirting with a crowd of young male admirers from her dormitory window. She was flirting? What a, that's unbelievable. You're going to show ankle. You might see, you might see foot. Um, and just to briefly touch on the foot business, he, he, was, he was super hung up about his like own feet. He was one of these guys who would, and it's fine if you do, we're not going to make fun of you, but I mean, he, you know, he would like wear sandals on or like socks and sandals on the beach. And then he had a fixation for, for women's feet. There's even a passage, I think in this side of paradise where like 
the like there's there's a villain or there's some sort of evil happening and he describes like seeing the feet come down the elevator and does, yeah, yeah and so like right. feet are like symbolic of like evil and right. you know right. yeah yeah dr freud dr okay. freud to the uh, art of darkness studios mm-hmm. um so good uh that's very funny her return home ended fitzgerald's weekly uh courtship Despite the great distance separating them, Fitzgerald still attempted to pursue Genova, and he traveled across the country to visit her family's Lake Forest estate. Although Genova loved him, her upper-class family belittled Scott's courtship because of his lower-class status compared to her other wealthy suitors. Her imperious father, uh, Garfield King, purportedly told uh, a young Fitzgerald that poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls. Well, and you add that on top of all the status anxiety that he already had, and he never got over her. So even later, people who might know his life story, when he falls in love with Zelda, he's still infatuated with Ginevra. I'm not sure even how you're supposed to yeah, pronounce Ginevra. it. Yeah, Ginevra. Uh, yeah. You don't hear that much anymore, you don't. do you? Uh, nobody's naming their kid that. It's one days. of those names. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but he never gets over her, and that status, that was just sort of the cream on the on the... That was like another dollop of status anxiety that basically he would never get over. Yeah. I got to get this in and then we're, we'll, we'll get to the novels okay, here yeah. soon. Um, Fitzgerald's junior year at Princeton, 1915 to 16 was a disaster. He began the college year by failing the makeup exam and qualitative analysis, thereby again, becoming ineligible for campus offices and in particular for the presidency of the Triangle Club. He wanted to be president of the the drama club, basically, which went to Paul Nelson. 20 years later, Fitzgerald analyzed the permanent results of that disappointment. Uh, To me, college would never be the same. There would be no badges of pride, no medals after all. It seemed on one March afternoon that I had lost every single thing I wanted. And that night was the first time that I hunted down the specter of womanhood that for a little while makes everything else seem unimportant. What was he talking about there? What's he I have no about idea. <laughs> there are no, there's no footnote. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, let's hear a little more. I do yeah. like this phrase, the specter of womanhood. That's quite good. I, I'm going to have to do some research. That's uh, <laughs> good. Yeah, time. right. No, 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 don't do it. Um, years later, I realized that my failure as a big shot is all right. Instead of serving on committees, I took a beating in English poetry. When I got the idea of what it was all about, I set about learning how to write on Shaw's principle that if you don't get what you like, you better like what you get. It was a lucky break. At the moment, it was a harsh and bitter business to know that my career as a leader of men was over. Different times. Like if, you, if you're flunking out of Princeton, it's not like you're going to land like now, like you uh, dropped out of Princeton and I go to Silicon Valley and somebody just throws me money because I've got something that'll like spin blood around in a machine yeah. and, yeah. and uh, yeah, you can automatic you can AI blood for 18 months. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the AI blood that writes your tweets for you. <laughs> I need some of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it, it was very, very, very serious business. And they were like adults at the age of like 18. They were, you know, it's different. Um, since that day, I have not been able to fire a bad servant. And I am astonished and impressed by people who can. Some old desire for personal dominance was broken and gone. Life around me was a solemn dream. And I lived on the letters I wrote to a girl in another city. 
A man does not recover from such jolts. He becomes a different person, and eventually the new person finds new things to care about. Yeah, and then the biographer here is saying, Fitzgerald's expression for sexual intercourse with a whore. Hold the phone. <laughs> Channeling Norm here. I hunted down the specter of womanhood is noteworthy. It is. That's quite a turn of phrase. Yeah. As late as 1936, fornication would still carry connotations of supernatural corruption in his fiction. That's true. All right. Uh, yeah. So he's rejected by Genova, an unsuitable match. He's suicidal. What does he do? He enlists in the U.S. Army amid World War I, receives a commission as a second lieutenant while awaiting deployment to the Western Front where he, and he dropped out of Princeton. He had health problems and he just dropped out. But in typical youthful Fitzgerald fashion, he sort of, in his writing about it, he's like, oh, I had some health problems. You know, he kind of got kicked out is yeah, what it amounts yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. So, but he was able to sort of justify it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he hoped to have a novel published before his, um, his anticipated death in Europe. So he... <laughs> It's dark. That's, yeah, dark. that's dark. That's Fitz, dark. He hastily wrote a 120,000-word manuscript entitled The Romantic Egotist. Yeah. We're getting to it. Yeah. In three months. Three months. When he submitted the manuscript to publishers, Scribner's rejected it, although the impressed reviewer, Max Perkins, praised Fitzgerald's writing and encouraged him to resu resubmit it after further revisions. Fair to say Max Perkins was like the... Yeah, he, uh, was the man, he was the man back then. I mean, there were a handful of people who were not writers, but who, if you had access to them or they liked you, that meant you could have a career. Max Perkins was one of them. Edmund, Edmund Wilson was another one. H.L. Mencken was another one who, who Fitzgerald uh, became quite good friends with. So, yeah, yeah, that was a good that was a good poll. Yeah. For 120,000 words in three months. Yeah. That's insane. Easy. It's a mess. Just do it. There's no way that's not a mess when sure. you get it in. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> Just a total disaster. Yeah. Uh, so he meets Zelda at a country club. She's a 17-year-old Southern belle, affluent granddaughter of a Confederate senator whose extended family owned the first White House of the Confederacy. Uh, very interesting. I don't even know what that means. I didn't know they had a White House. Um, she was another celebrated debutante. And of course, we know what would eventually happen between Fitz and Zelda. But before he could marry her, he needs he needed some money. Mm -hmm. Well, how is he going to get money? He's going to start writing. You write a novel. That's the best way to make a lot of money really quickly, as people should know. I mean, it says here Fitzgerald subsided and uh, subsisted in rel uh, relative poverty, still aspiring to a lucrative career in literature. He wrote sh several short stories and satires in his spare time. He was rejected over 120 times and he sold only one story, Babes in the Woods, and he received only $30 for this. Which he immediately spent on uh, white flannel pajamas for he and Zelda. Very nice. He spent all of it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah that's great. So he's doing ad jobs and whatever. He, he he's been, he comes back to uh, St. Paul and he decided to make one last attempt to become a novelist and stake everything on the success or failure of a book. Abstaining from alcohol and parties, eh. <laughs> he worked day and night to revise the romantic egotist as This Side of Paradise, an autobiographical account of his Princeton years and his romances with, with Genova, Zelda, and others. Mm -hmm. uh, I, apparently, he was working a job repairing car roofs. He did do that for a while, yeah. That's yeah. cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little, hand, little bit of a... hands dirty. Yeah, yeah, we'll see when we come to Winter Dreams here pretty soon uh, that 
you know, he has that sense of somebody who's worked a job, like a caddy or I don't know, I'm repairing a car roof yeah. or I don't know what else. What would the equivalent be now today, Brad? I'm a I'm a I'm a barista. Something at yeah. Starbucks. An actual job. Yeah, yeah, it's a real yeah. job. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Sure, I'm not spinning blood around and <laughs> generating AI fugazi. Right, right, right. And this is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Couchman and Brad Kelly. Thank you for listening out there in podcast land. Brad, what do you got for well, us? Well, yeah, here? let's talk a little bit about. Um, let's talk a little bit about this side of paradise. So this side of paradise comes out, uh, and it's published in March twenty March twenty sixth, nineteen twenty, and it is turns out to actually be a huge hit. So he'd been doing this sort of toiling away, 120 rejections, women who apparently love him can't be in a relationship with him because he's too poor. And he's like he's things. like half engaged to Zelda. She right. wants to marry him, but the, right. the Episcopalian family, the right. 50 Episcopalians, the Episcopalian <laughs> family, they, uh, yeah. but they're, they're literally, you can't yeah. marry you know, him. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so anyway, 1920, this not this book comes out. He'd been publishing a handful of short stories before this, but he gets this deal with Scribner's. It comes out. It's a huge deal. Um, multiple printings, tens of thousands of copies sold. It was a, it was a sensation. It really was amongst the sort of cool set. Um, the jazz age hipster kind of set. Um, the people we would have been back then. Maybe they you would have been. been. <laughs> <laughs> how many did it sell? How, how oh, old was he? Yeah, how many did it sell? have the numbers. It's like 49,000. That's crazy. 40,000 in the first year. And clearly wow. since then, it sold sold more and more. And that more. rocks. Um, and he was 23? He was 23 years old. He's a child. I basically. love it. He, right. got, he got over, and I know we're going rapid yeah. fire here, but he did. He got over that egotism that he had, and he recognized yeah. it in himself enough to be able to function to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. This book is very much pared down from the romantic egotist. And there are, in fact, there are chapter headings called things like the egotist goes down. Like it's clearly remnants of this first book that he wrote. It's a buildings roman and it's a campus novel. Um, it has been called the sort of first intellectually satisfying campus novel for people who are familiar. There's this phenomena in, in literature where uh, a writer sort of becomes an academic and then they don't have anything to write about anymore. So they write about being on a college campus and everybody, it's sort of, you know, typically it's like a, a professor who becomes divorced and gets involved in a romantic relationship with a young student or whatever. That's, there's like a thousand of those books. Isn't that the, that's yeah. the corrections. I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. that's a good book though. It is, that is. Yeah. There's good and versions of it. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. but it's a, it's a trope almost. Right, right I understand. Um, it's a bit it, of a cliche. And it was even at this point, but Fitzgerald's is, is kind of coming at it into it as a young man. So he's, he's, it's almost, this side of paradise is almost completely um, autobiographical. Um, it's this character named Amory, Amory Blaine, son of a well-to-do Midwestern businessman who enters Princeton with an inflated self of self, a uh, sense of self-importance, burns himself out on booze and women uh, and ideas. Fights in the trenches of World War One. It's funny because the, the World War One part, it's sort of like, he sort of skips over it. It's sort of just like refer because I think he didn't want it to become a war novel, mm. and so I think he just sort of like glossed over the fact that he that that had happened. Right? Um, there's a bunch of real people who are in it, including people we've talked about so far: Geneva King, um, uh, who would become Daisy Buchanan. This character Rosalind, who stands in for Zelda. Uh, there's a Fitzgerald or uh, Amory Blaine's best friend is this father Sigourney is uh, is uh, 
a priest modeled on Father Sigourney Faye. Um, so it's all, it's, there's very little invention, actually. It's almost strictly him writing out his life. Um, at the same point, like, there's a couple of interesting things but about this book. Would you call it autofiction? I mean, we would call that autofiction now, I think. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, there's, there's some interesting touches to it. So there's an aspect of it that I think a person could argue is quite messy in that there are, there's a lot of poetry in it, mm. which is clearly Fitzgerald's poetry. Right. It's not all very good, frankly, um, especially if you're not, if you're not really into poetry, you probably think it's all not very good, frankly. Um, it's a little cringy. Um, but there are parts also that are written as plays. They're just, they're just scripts. They're just the character's name with a colon and this thing, thing that they say. And I think there's one way to look at it where he was cranking that stuff out. He was rushing because it's, it's a little bit faster to do that. Right. Um, but I think on another hand, there is, he's sort of, looking forward to it sort of stylistically making some interesting decisions, right? He's like, I'm going to write a passage. That's a normal novel. I'm going to write a, a, a big piece of poem. I'm going to have a play. Like he's really playing around with the form, which is pretty interesting. That is, that is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also this thing that's not quite, you don't quite see in the Gatsby. Cause so we could talk a lot about this book and a lot about um, the beautiful and the damned. Um, the truth is that Fitzgerald tried to write the same book three times and then hit it with great Gatsby. That's really what happened. So this side of paradise has some cool, some interesting, cool things that happen. Uh, Beautiful in the dance the same way. And then the great Gatsby is like actually knocking it out of the park and like really hitting, hitting what you really wanted to do. Um, so you'll see in this side of paradise, a lot of unevenness, there's a ghost shows up at one point and then it's sort of never addressed again. Like, why, why is this, why would, why was this ghost here? Right? Like there's little bits and bobs like that. There's a character that uh, a friend of his in college, this guy, um, Humbert dies in a car wreck and then it's never mentioned again. And it's just, there's this, uh, there's these clear things where it's definitely rushed and sort of pushed into production. But I mean, who am I to judge? It sold 40,000 copies in the first year. Fair enough. He must've been yeah. doing something right. Yeah. But well, how, how would you de describe the quality of prose? Like on the sentence level, is it there? There's some that's quite good. Let me actually read you just like a little bit. So I have this. Uh, okay. They clapped the last time you read. I know, I know. I'm gonna do, I'll see what I can do. This is not a, this is not a long part, um, but just gives you a flavor of what's happening. And it's fairly early in the book. Um, this is from a chapter called The Egotist Down. Oh, this is part of the mess too. There's chapters and then within the chapter, there'll be another subheading. And it's not clear like what he's even doing from like an organization, like is this the same? It's it's sort of like a half finished essay, right? Sounds like it might've been drinking. A little bit. Okay, so here's a little bit from there, <clears throat> from uh, this side of paradise. Amory's two years at St. Regis, that was the boarding, the, the boarding school this character goes to though in turn painful and triumphant, had as little real significance in his own life as the American prep school, crushed as it is under the heel of the universities as to American life in general. We have no Eton to create the self-consciousness of a governing class. We have instead clean, flaccid, and innocuous preparatory schools. He went all wrong at the start, was generally considered both conceited and arrogant and universally detested. See, we got this from the biography. It's like literally the exact same thing. He played football intensely, 
Maybe not. Alternating a reckless brilliance with a tendency to keep himself as safe from hazard as decency would permit. In a wild panic, he backed out of a fight with the boy's own size to a chorus of scorn, and a week later, in desperation, picked a battle with another boy very much bigger, from which he emerged badly beaten, but rather proud of himself. He was resentful against all those in authority over him, and this, combined with a lazy indifference toward his work, exasper exasperated every master in school. He grew discouraged and imagined himself a pariah, took to sulking in corners and reading after lights. With the dread of being alone, he attached a few friends, but since they were not among the elite of the school, he used them simply as mirrors of himself, audiences before which he might do that posing absolutely essential to him. He was unbearably lonely, desperately unhappy. There were some few grains of comfort. Whenever Amory was submerged, his vanity was the last part to go below the surface, so he could still enjoy a comfortable glow when Wookie Wookie, the deaf old housekeeper, told him that he was the best looking boy she had ever seen. It had pleased him to be the lightest and youngest man on the football squad. It pleased him when Dr. Dougal told him at the end of a heated conference that he could, if he wished, get the best marks in school. But Dr. Dougal was wrong. It was temperamentally impossible for Amory to get the best marks in school. Miserable, confined to bounds, a popular with both faculty and students, that was Amory's first term. This is at the prep school, right? But at Christmas, he had returned to Minneapolis, tight-lipped and strangely jubilant. Oh, I was sort of fresh at first, he told his friend Frog Parker patronizingly, but I got along fine. Lightest man on the squad, they say. You ought to go, to way to, go, go away to school, Froggy. It's great stuff. <laughs> so he it's has terrible. this terrible experience at school, and then he comes home, and he's sort of like, oh, you should go. You really should. Yeah. I, I don't mean to do my own horn, but boarding school, preparatory school is really... It's really where it's at. Um, so yeah. so uh, this side of paradise is a huge success. Mm -hmm. It'll. Do you have anything more to say about well, it? Well, one thing I want to say, and I don't have anything else to read. One thing, I, I, it's funny as I was reading it, and there's quite charming parts, and, and really it is a buildings roman. Like that's the preparatory school part, but we go through Princeton. We go through World War One. We go mm -hmm. through his ad agency he works for briefly. He becomes like a confused socialist at one point and then immediately retracts it. Um, <laughs> and then there's, but there's no, as, no other kind, right. As I was going through it, it turns out, I, I kept thinking about Wes Anderson the whole time I was reading oh. it. It's very sort of like kind of charming and sort of like nothing really bad can happen kind of, you okay. know, it's sort of bopping along sure. and every little scene is like this, this quaint little set piece. All the characters are really well rendered. Sure. There's conversations and, he has. And the it's new and the people are going to love it. And yes. it's from a fresh voice, somebody yeah. from the West. He's a Catholic, but he's, yeah. he's a, semi-educated. Yeah. You yeah. know, at Princeton. Yeah. 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 And, and there's, there's, it's, it's, it's exceedingly charming, mm. I found. And there's, there's, and to think about the fact that this, this 23 year old man is writing it, there are some attempts at sort of like high flown ideas mm. that kind of don't quite land. Sure. Cause it's sort of like, yeah, you're, you're 23, right? Uh, like they're like, they're like, that's pretty smart. But like, also there's a whole lot of other stuff you have no idea about yet. So you do. And, and that's almost kind of cute in a way, honestly. Sure. Right? Like, it's yeah. it's endearing. So. Um, Love it. Quite recommend it. It's it's quite fun. Brilliant. All right. We, we got to bring this in. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to rip through some stuff really quickly. So, big success. Now we can get married. They get married at St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral in New York. He and Zelda, you all probably know the stories of them at the fountain in the front of the hotel in New York. And they were wild and everybody wanted to meet them. They were celebrities, A-list, 
top notch, top of the world, about as famous as you can get as an American writer at the time, probably ever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like Stephen King would be a, a comparable possible, but yeah, but, not, but they yeah they had that pop but more fun celebrity, right? They but had the, more right, fun. right, and the tabloid yeah. kind of thing where yeah, you, know, you know, absolutely. So they they go on, they are they're living this luxurious lifestyle, and he works on the beautiful and the damned. Yes, right. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Then remember, bring us to Winter Dreams. And we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to hear the theater company right, read right. one of his stories. Yeah. So the beautiful and the damned, as I said, Fitzgerald takes three whacks at writing the same book and finally gets in the Great Gatsby. Beautiful and the damned is the second attempt, and it is slightly more of a mature of a of a of a book from a both an idea standpoint and a craft standpoint. He'd been cranking out short stories in between too, so he had a certain efficiency, and um, I think he was able to write what would be a more coherent plot wise it's mm. it's not as messy as as the side of paradise but it's fundamentally the same book i mean you have anthony patch is an intelligent moneyed young man of the j jazz age who has i could basically just be reading the this side of paradise right. some right right yeah um just rewind the episode yeah. listen to it listen again to that and part that and that's yeah. the beautiful right. and the dance what you're telling me is that they're beautiful right. and, and they're damned. damned it's true yeah yeah now there is more interesting perspectives on literature, I think, mm. because some time has gone on. He's mm. he's matured in this in this regard. Um, let me just read one quick little part, right? Um, and this is between two of the characters, Anthony and another character who both have literary ambitions. Anthony says, you know, I was thinking today that I have great confidence in Dick, who's another friend of theirs, so long as he sticks to people and not ideas, and as long as his inspirations come from life and not art, and always granting a normal growth. I believe he'll be a big man. The whole book, there's a lot of talk about. He'll be big man. He'll have a he'll have a this. He'll You're gonna make that. it, kid. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, his friend Maury. I should think the appearance of the black notebook would prove that he's going to life. This is a notebook he's scribbling in all the time. Anthony raised himself on his elbow and answered eagerly. He tries to go to life. So does every author, except the very worst. But after all, most of them live on pre-digested food. The incident or character may be from life but the writer usually interprets in terms of the last book he read. For instance, suppose he meets a sea captain and thinks he's an original character. The truth is that he sees the resemblance between the sea captain and the sea captain Dana created or whoever creates sea captains and therefore he knows how to set the sea captain on paper. Dick, of course, can set down any consciously picturesque character-like character, but could he accurately transcribe his own sister? Right. So there's a lot of conversations about how to make literature in the book, in the book. Yeah. It's very meta. In that I way. understand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So his, his, his second novel mm -hmm. is a Gatsby, proto Gatsby, but it's also reflecting more on what literature is. It's more on, it's more on literature. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything else to say about that one? I mean, not in particular. I just think it's relevant to think about this thing as, again, that the Great Gatsby is like almost the final draft of these two other works that he's doing. And I think what he needed to get to the Gatsby, which we're not going into the Gatsby part of his biography that comes later, when he writes The Beautiful and the Damned, he's already successful. I think the thing to think about is part of the Gats the Great Gatsby phenomenon, what's going on in that book, is to consider the fact that he is famous and rich, trying to stay famous and rich, and he's taking three attempts to really encapsulate it. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Sure. Thanks for giving us a little bit. There you go. The resident yeah. novelist. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah. Oh, Get that in. Yeah. All right. We are all right. almost, done. almost done. Yeah, I'm going to bring you into winter dreams here. So 
Uh, Fitz and Zelda have a daughter. He's working on Beautiful and the Damned. We've heard about the plot. Um, Metropolitan Magazine serialized the manuscript in 1921, and Scribner's published the book in 1922. Scribner's prepared an initial print run of 20,000 copies. It sold well enough to warrant additional print runs reaching 50,000 copies. And to give you some, I mean, how how many novels do people usually sell now? Oh, I mean, the average is 200. It's insane. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So that year, Fitzgerald released an anthology of 11 stories entitled Tales of the Jazz Age. He'd written <laughs> all but two of the stories before 1920. Uh, he was also doing some business with the play. It failed. He was writing a play. It didn't do well. And he was hanging out on Long Island. And of course, if we know what's coming with Gatsby, right, we know that that's important. He enjoyed it, but he disapproved of the extravagant parties and the wealthy people he encountered often, often disappointed him. While striving to emulate the rich, he found their privileged lifestyle morally disquieting. He admired the rich. He possessed, although he admired the rich, he possessed a smoldering resentment toward them. While he and Zelda were living on Long Island, one of Fitzgerald's wealthier neighbors was Max Gerlach, purportedly born in America to a German immigrant family. Gerlach had been a major in the American expeditionary, uh, expeditionary forces during World War I and became a gentleman bootlegger who lived like a millionaire in New York. Does that sound familiar? It's yeah. Gatsby. Um, flaunting his new wealth, Gerlach threw lavish parties, never wore the same shirt twice, used the <laughs> phrase old sport. <laughs> which they just beat to death in the movie. Oh, in the movie. It's and fostered myths about himself, including that he was a relation of the German Kaiser. And of course, we know about Gatsby. And that brings us to the short story that he wrote right around the time he was working on Beautiful and the Damned, mm -hmm. Winter nice Dreams, 1922. Thank you for joining us for Art of Darkness Live, <laughs> Fitzgerald you, Part 1. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Doc. Thanks. Thank you. Good job. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that was awesome, man. That was good. That was good. We're going to come back and try to make it a quick five. We're going to come back. We're going to reset. Good. We're going to have a theater company read it. And out in podcast land, thank you. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod if you want to hear about, about foot the stuff. foot stuff. <laughs>
Some of the caddies were poor as sin and lived in one-room houses with a neurasthenic cow in the front yard. But Dexter Green's father owned the second-best grocery store in Black Bear. The best one was The Hub, patronized by the wealthy people from Sherry Island, and Dexter caddied only for pocket money. In the fall, when the days became crisp and gray and the long Minnesota winter shut down like the white lid of a box, Dexter's skis moved over the snow that hid the fairways of the golf course. At these times, the country gave him a feeling of profound melancholy. It offended him that the links should lie in enforced fallowness, haunted by a ragged sparrows for the long season. It was dreary, too, that on the trees where the gay colors fluttered in the summer, there were now only the desolate sandboxes, deep, knee-encrusted ice. When he crossed the hills, the wind blew cold as misery, and if the sun was out, he tramped with his eyes, squinted up against the hard, dimensionless glare. Dexter knew there was something dismal about this northern spring, just as he knew there was something gorgeous about the fall. Fall made him clench his hands and tremble and repeat idiotic sentences to himself and make brisk, abrupt gestures of command to imaginary audiences and armies. October filled him with hope, which November raised to a sort of ecstatic triumph. And in this mood, the fleeting brilliant impressions of the summer at Sherry Island were ready grist to his mill. He became a golf champion and defeated Mr. T.A. Hedrick in a marvelous match played a hundred times over the fairways of his imagination, a match each detail of which he changed about untiringly. Sometimes he won with almost laughable ease. Sometimes he came up magnificently from behind. Again, Stepping from a Pierce Arrow automobile like Mr. Mortimer Jones, he strolled frigidly into the lounge of the Sherry Island Golf Club. Or perhaps surrounded by an admiring crowd, he gave an exhibition of fancy diving from the springboard of the club raft. Among those who watched him in open-mouthed wonder was Mr. Mortimer Jones. And one day it came to pass that Mr. Jones himself, and not his ghost, came up to Dexter with tears in his eyes and said that Dexter was the best caddy in the club, and wouldn't he decide not to quit if Mr. Jones made it worth his while because every other caddy in the club lost one ball a hole for him regularly. No, sir, I don't want a caddy anymore. I'm too old. You're not more than 14. Why the devil did you decide just this morning that you wanted to quit? You promised me that next week you'd go over to the state tournament with me. I decided I was too old. Dexter handed in his A-class badge, collected what money was due to him from the caddy master, and walked home to Black Bear Village. The best goddamned caddy I ever saw. Never lost a ball. Willing. Intelligent. Quiet. Honest. Grateful. The little girl who had done this was eleven, beautifully ugly as little girls are apt to be who are destined, after a few years, to be inexpressibly lovely and to bring no end of misery to a great number of men. The spark, however, was perceptible. There was a general ungodliness in the way her lips twisted down at the corners when she smiled, and in the heaven-help-us in almost passionate quality of her eyes. Vitality is born early in such women— it was utterly in evidence now, shining through her thin frame in a sort of glow. 
She had come eagerly out onto the course at nine o'clock with a white linen nurse and five small new golf clubs in a white canvas bag, which the nurse was carrying. When Dexter first saw her, she was standing by the caddy house, rather ill at ease and trying to conceal the fact by engaging her nurse in an obviously unnatural conversation, graced by startling and irrelevant grimaces from herself. Well, it's certainly a nice day, Hilda. She drew down the corners of her mouth, smiled, and glanced furtively around, her eyes in transit, falling for an instant on Dexter. Then to the nurse. Well, I guess there aren't very many people out here this morning, are there? The smile again, radiant, blatantly artificial, convincing. I don't know what we're supposed to do now. Oh, that's all right. I'll fix it up. Dexter stood perfectly still, his mouth slightly ajar. He knew that if he moved forward a step, his stare would be in her line of vision. If he moved backward, he would lose his full view of her face. For a moment, he had not realized how young she was. Now he remembered having seen her several times the year before, in bloomers. Suddenly, involuntarily, he laughed, a short, abrupt laugh. Then, startled by himself, he turned and began to walk quickly away. Boy! Dexter stopped. Boy! Beyond question, he was addressed. Not only that, but he was treated to that absurd smile, that preposterous smile, the memory of which at least a dozen men were to carry into middle age. Boy, do you know where the golf teacher is? He's given a lesson. Well, do you know where the caddy master is? He isn't here yet this morning. Oh. For a moment, this baffled her. She stood alternately on her right and left foot. We'd like to get a caddy. Mrs. Mortimer Jones sent us out to play golf, and we don't know how without getting a caddy. Here, she was stopped by an ominous glance from Miss Jones, followed immediately by the smile. There aren't any caddies here except me, and I got to stay here in charge until the caddy master gets here. Oh. Miss Jones and her retinue now withdrew, and at a proper distance from Dexter, became involved in a heated conversation, which was concluded by Miss Jones taking one of the clubs and hitting it on the ground with violence. For further emphasis, she raised it again and was about to bring it down smartly upon the nurse's bosom when the nurse seized the club and twisted it from her hands. Oh, you damn little mean old thing. Another argument ensued. Realizing that the elements of the comedy were implied in the scene, Dexter several times began to laugh, but each time restrained the laugh before it reached audibility. He could not resist the monstrous conviction that the little girl was justified in beating the nurse. The situation was resolved by the fortuitous appearance of the caddy master, who was appealed to immediately by the nurse. Miss Jones is to have a little caddy, and this one says he can't go. Mr. McKenna said I was to wait here till you came. Well, he's here now. Miss Jones smiled cheerfully at the caddy master. Then she dropped her bag and set off at a haughty mince towards the first tee. Well, what are you standing there like a dummy for? Go pick up the young lady's clubs. I don't think I'll go out today. You don't? I think I'll quit. The enormity of his decision frightened him. 
He was a favorite caddy, and the $30 a month he earned through the summer were not to be made elsewhere around the lake. But he had received a strong emotional shock, and his perturbation required a violent and immediate outlet. It is not so simple as that, either. As so frequently would be the case in the future, Dexter was unconsciously dictated to by his winter dreams. Now, of course, the quality and the seasonability of these winter dreams varied, but the stuff of them remained. They persuaded Dexter several years later to pass up a business course at the State University. His father, proposing now, would have paid his way for the precarious advantage of attending an older and more famous university in the East, where he was bothered by his scanty funds. But do not get the impression because his winter dreams happened to be concerned at first with musings on the rich that there was anything merely snobbish in the boy. He wanted not association with glittering things and glittering people. He wanted the glittering things themselves. Often he reached out for the best without knowing why he wanted it. And sometimes he ran up against the mysterious denials and prohibitions in which life indulges. It is with one of those denials and not with his career as a whole that this story deals. He made money. It was rather amazing. After college, he went to the city from which Black Bear Lake draws its wealthy patrons. When he was only 23, he had been there not quite two years. There were already people who liked to say, Now there's a boy. All about him, rich men's sons were peddling bonds precariously, or investing patrimonies precariously, or plodding through the two dozen volumes of the George Washington commercial course. But Dexter borrowed $1,000 on his college degree and his confident mouth and bought a partnership in a laundry. It was a small laundry when he went into it, but Dexter made a specialty of learning how the English washed fine woolen golf stockings without shrinking them. And within a year, he was catering to the tray that wore knickerbockers. Men were insisting that their Shetland hose and sweaters go to his laundry, just as they had insisted on a caddy who could find golf balls. A little later, he was doing their wives' lingerie as well, and running five branches in different parts of the city. Before he was 27, he owned the largest string of laundries in his section of the country. It was then that he sold out and went to New York. But the part of his story that concerns us goes back to the days when he was making his first big success. When he was 23, Mr. Hart, one of the gray-haired men who liked to say, Now there's a boy. Gave him a guest card to the Sherry Island Golf Club for the weekend. So he signed his name one day on the register and that afternoon played golf in a foursome with Mr. Hart and Mr. Sandwood and Mr. T.A. Hendrick. He did not consider it necessary to remark that he had once carried Mr. Hart's bag over the same links and that he knew every trap and gully with his eyes shut, but he found himself glancing at the four caddies who trailed them, trying to catch a gleam or a gesture that would remind him of himself and that would lessen the gap which lay between his present and his past. It was a curious day, slashed abruptly with fleeting, familiar impressions. One minute he had the sense of being a trespasser, in the next, he was impressed by the tremendous superiority he felt toward Mr. T.A. Hendrick, who was a bore and not even a good golfer anymore. Then, because of a ball Mr. Hart lost near the 15th green, an enormous thing happened. While they were searching the stiff grasses of the ref, there was a clear call of four from behind a hill in their rear. 
and as they turned abruptly from their search, a bright new ball sliced abruptly over the hill and caught Mr. T.A. Hendrick in the abdomen. Thank God. They ought to put some of these crazy women off the course. It's getting to be outrageous. <laughs> a head and a voice came up together over the hill. Do you mind if we go through? You hit me in the stomach. Did I? I'm sorry. I yelled for. Did I bounce through the rough? It was impossible to determine whether this question was ingenuous or malicious. In a moment, however, she left no doubt, for her partner came up over the hill. She called cheerfully, Here I am! I'd have gone on to the next green, except that I hit something. And as she took her stance for a short mashy shot, Dexter looked at her closely. She wore a blue gingham dress, rimmed at the throat and shoulders with a white edging that accentuated her tan. The quality of exaggeration of thinness which had made her passionate eyes and down-turning mouth absurd at eleven was now gone. She was arrestingly beautiful. The color in her cheeks was centered like the color in a picture. It was not a high color, but a sun of fluctuating and feverish warmth, so shaded that it seemed at any moment it would recede and disappear. This color and the mobility of her mouth gave a continual impression of flux, of intense life, of passionate vitality that balanced only partially by the sad luxury of her eyes. She swung her mashie impatiently and without interest, pitching the ball into a sand pit on the other side of the green. With a quick, insincere smile and a careless, Thank you. She went on after it. That Judy Jones. All she needs is to be turned up and spanked for six months, and then to be married off to an old-fashioned cavalry captain. She always looks as if she wanted to be kissed, turning those big cow eyes on every calf in town. They waited some moments for her to play on ahead. She has no form, but a nice figure. Better thank the Lord she doesn't drive a swifter ball. <laughs> Mr. Hendrick winked at Dexter, and they played on. Later in the afternoon, the sun went down with a righteous swirl of gold and varying blues and scarlets, and they left the dry, rustling night of the western summer. Dexter watched from the veranda at the golf club, watched the even overlap of the waters and the little wind, silver molasses under the harvest moon. Then the moon held a finger to her lips, and the lake became a clear pool, pale and quiet. Dexter put on his bathing suit and swam out to the farthest raft where he stretched, dripping on the wet canvas of the springboard. There was a fish jumping and a star shining, and the lights around the lake were gleaming. Over on a dark peninsula, a piano was playing the songs of last summer and of summers before that, songs from Chin Chin and the Count of Luxembourg and the Chocolate Soldier. And because the sound of a piano over a stretch of water had always seemed beautiful to Dexter. He lay perfectly quiet and listened. The tune the piano was playing at that moment had been gay and new five years before, when Dexter was a sophomore at college. They had played it at a prom once when he could not afford the luxury of proms, and he had stood outside the gymnasium and listened. The sound of the tune precipitated in him a sort of ecstasy, and it was with that ecstasy he viewed what happened to him now was a mood of intense appreciation, a sense that, for once, he was magnificently attuned to life, and that everything about him was radiating a brightness and a glamour he might never know again. 
a low, pale oblong detached itself suddenly from the darkness of the island, spitting forth the reverberate sound of a racing motorboat. Two white streamers of cleft water rolled themselves out behind it, and almost immediately the boat was beside him. Drowning out the hot tinkle of the piano and the drone of its spray, Dexter, raising himself onto his arms, was aware of a figure standing at the wheel, of two dark eyes regarding him over the lengthening space of water. Then the boat had gone by and was sweeping in an immense and purposeless circle of spray around and around the middle of the lake. With equal eccentricity, one of the circles flattened out and headed back toward the raft. Who's that? She shut off her motor. She was so near now that Dexter could see her bathing suit, which consisted apparently of pink rompers. The nose of the boat bumped the raft, and as the latter tilted rakishly, he was precipitated toward her. With different degrees of interest, they recognized each other. Aren't you one of those men we played through this afternoon? He was. Well, do you know how to drive a motorboat? Because if you do, I wish you'd drive this one so I can ride on the surfboard behind. My name is Judy Jones, and I live in a house over there on the island. And in that house, there is a man waiting for me. When he drove up at the door, I drove out of the dock because he says I'm his ideal. There was a fish jumping and a star shining, and the lights around the lake were gleaming. Dexter sat beside Judy Jones, and she explained how her boat was driven. Then she was in the water, swimming to the floating surfboard with a sinuous crawl. Watching her was without effort to the eye, watching a branch waving or a seagull flying. Her arms, burned to butternut, moved sinuously among the dull platinum ripples, elbow appearing first, casting the forearm back with a cadence of falling water, then reaching out and down, stabbing a path ahead. They moved out onto the lake, turning. Dexter saw she was kneeling on the low rear of the now uplifted surfboard. Go faster, fast as it'll go. Obediently, he jammed the lever forward, and the white spray mounted at the bow. When he looked around again, the girl was standing up on the rushing board. Her arms spread wide, her eyes lifted toward the moon. It's awful cold. What's your name? He told her. Well, why don't you come to dinner tomorrow night? His heart turned over like the flywheel of the boat, and for the second time, her casual whim gave a new direction to his life. Next evening, while he waited for her to come down the stairs, Dexter peopled the soft, deep summer room and the sun porch that opened from it to the men who had already loved Judy Jones. He knew the sort of men they were, the men who, when he first went to college, had entered from the great prep schools with graceful clothes and the deep tan of healthy summers. He had seen that, in one sense, he was better than these men. He was newer and stronger. Yet in acknowledging to himself that he wished his children to be like them, he was admitting that he was but the rough, strong stuff from which they eternally sprang. When the time had come for him to wear good clothes, he had known who were the best tailors in America, and the best tailors in America had made him the suit he wore this evening. He had acquired that particular reserve peculiar to his university that set it off from other universities. He recognized the value to him of such a mannerism, and he had adopted it. He knew that to be careless in dress and manner required more confidence than to be careful. But carelessness was for his children. His mother's name had been Crimslich. She was a bohemian of the peasant class, 
and she had talked in broken English to the end of her days. Her son must keep to the set patterns. At a little after seven, Judy Jones came downstairs. She wore a blue silk afternoon dress, and he was disappointed at first that she had not put on something more elaborate. This feeling was accentuated when, after a brief greeting, she went to the door of a butler's pantry and, pushing it open, called, You can serve dinner, Martha. He had rather expected that a butler would announce dinner, that there would be a cocktail. Then he put these thoughts behind him as they sat down side by side on a lounge and looked at each other. Father and mother won't be here. He remembered the last time he had seen her father, and he was glad the parents were not to be here tonight. They might wonder who he was. He had been born in Keeble, a Minnesota village 50 miles farther north, and he always gave Keeble as his home instead of Black Bear Village. Country towns were well enough to come from if they weren't inconveniently in sight and used as footstools by fashionable lakes. They talked of his university, which she had visited frequently during the past two years, and of the nearby city which supplied Sherry Island with its patrons, and whither Dexter would return the next day to his prospering laundries. During dinner, she slipped into a moody depression which gave Dexter a feeling of uneasiness. Whatever petulance she uttered in her throaty voice worried him. Whatever she smiled at, at him, at a chicken liver, at nothing, it disturbed him that her smile could have no root in mirth or even in amusement. When the scarlet corners of her lips curved down, it was less a smile than an invitation to kiss. Then, after dinner, she let him out on the dark sun porch and deliberately changed the atmosphere. Do you mind if I weep a little? I'm afraid I'm boring you. You're not. I like you. But I've had a terrible afternoon. There was a man I cared about, and this afternoon he told me clear out of the sky that he was poor as a church mouse. He'd never even hinted it before. Does this sound terribly mundane? Perhaps he was afraid to tell you. Suppose he was. He didn't start right. You see, if I'd thought of him as poor, well, I've been mad about loads of poor men and fully intended to marry them all. But in this case, I hadn't thought of him that way, and my interest in him wasn't strong enough to survive the shock. As if a girl calmly informed her fiancé that she was a widow. He might not object to widows, but let's start right. Who are you, anyhow? I'm nobody. My career is largely a matter of futures. Are you poor? No. I'm probably making more money than any man my age in the Northwest. I know that's an obnoxious remark, but you advised me to start right. There was a pause. Then she smiled and the corners of her mouth drooped at an almost imperceptible sway brought her closer to him. Looking up into his eyes, a lump rose in Dexter's throat and he waited breathless for the experiment, facing the unpredictable compound that would form mysteriously from the elements of their lips. Then he saw she communicated her excitement to him, lavishly, deeply, with kisses that were not a promise but a fulfillment. They aroused in him not hunger demanding renewal, but a surfeit that would demand more surfeit, Kisses that were like charity, creating want by holding back nothing at all. It did not take him many hours to decide that he had wanted Judy Jones ever since he was a proud, desirous little boy. It began like that and continued with varying shades of intensity on such a note right up to the denouement. 
Dexter surrendered a part of himself to the most direct and unprincipled personality with which he had ever come in contact. Whatever Judy wanted, she went after with the full pressure of her charm. There was no divergence of method, no jockeying for position or premeditation of effects. There was a very little mental side to any of her affairs. She simply made men conscious to the highest degree of her physical loveliness. Dexter had no desire to change her. Her deficiencies were knit up with a passionate energy that transcended and justified them. As Judy's head lay against his shoulder that first night, she whispered, I don't know what's the matter with me. Last night I thought I was in love with a man, and tonight I think I'm in love with you. It seemed to him a beautiful and romantic thing to say. It was the exquisite excitability that for the moment he controlled and owned. But a week later, he was compelled to view this same quality in a different light. She took him in a roadster to a picnic supper, and after supper she disappeared likewise in her roadster with another man. Dexter became enormously upset and was scarcely able to be decently civil to the other people present. When she assured him that she had not kissed the other man, he knew she was lying. Yet he was glad that she had taken the trouble to lie to him. He was, as he found before the summer ended, one of the varying dozens who circulated about her. Each of them had at one time been favored above all others. About a half a dozen of them still basked in the solace of occasional sentiment revivals. Whenever one showed signs of dropping out, though, through long neglect, she granted him a brief honeyed hour which encouraged him to tag along for a year or so longer. Judy made these forays upon the helpless and defeated without malice, indeed half unconscious that there was anything mischievous in what she did. When a new man came to town, everyone dropped out. Dates were automatically canceled. The helpless part of trying to do anything about it was that she did it all herself. She was not a girl who could be one in the kinetic sense. She was proof against cleverness. She was proof against charm. If any of these assailed her too strongly, she would immediately resolve the affair to a physical basis. And under the magic of her physical splendor, the strong as well as the brilliant played her game and not their own. She was entertained only by the gratification of her desires and by the direct exercise of her own charm. Perhaps from so much youthful love, so many youthful lovers, she had come, in self-defense, to nourish herself wholly from within. Succeeding Dexter's first exhilaration came restlessness and dissatisfaction. The helpless ecstasy of losing himself in her was opiate rather than tonic. It was fortunate for his work during the winter that those moments of ecstasy came infrequently. Early in their acquaintance, it had seemed for a while that there was a deep and spontaneous mutual attraction. That first August, for example, three days of long evenings on her dusky veranda, of strange wan kisses through the late afternoon, in shadowy alcoves or behind the protecting trellises of the garden arbors, of mornings when she was fresh as a dream and almost shy at meeting him in the clarity of the rising day. There was all the ecstasy of an engagement about it, sharpened by his realization that there was no engagement. It was during those three days that, for the first time, he had asked her to marry him. Maybe someday. Kiss me. I'd like to marry you. I love you. The three days were interrupted by the arrival of a New York man who visited at her house for half September, to Dexter's agony, rumor engaged them. 
The man was the son of the president of a great trust company, but at the end of a month, it was reported that Judy was yawning. At a dance one night, she sat all evening in a motorboat with a local beau while the New Yorker searched the club for her frantically. She told the local beau that she was bored with her visitor, and two days later, he left. She was seen with him at the station, and it was reported that he looked very mournful indeed. On this note, the summer ended. Dexter was 24, and he found himself increasingly in a position to do as he wished. He joined two clubs in the city and lived at one of them. Though he was by no means an integral part of the stag lines at these clubs, he managed to be on hand at dances where Judy Jones was likely to appear. He could have gone out socially as much as he liked. He was an eligible young man now and popular with downtown fathers. He confessed devotion to Judy Jones had rather solidified his position, but he had no social aspirations and rather despised the dancing men who were always on tap for the Thursday or Saturday parties and who filled in at the dinners with the younger married set. Already he was playing with the idea of going east to New York. He wanted to take Judy Jones with him. No disillusion as to the world in which she had grown up could cure his illusion as to her desirability. Remember that, for only in the light of it can what he did for her be understood. Eighteen months after he first met Judy Jones, he became engaged to another girl. Her name was Irene Scherer, and her father was one of the men who had always believed in Dexter. Irene was a light-haired and sweet and honorable and a little stout, and she had two suitors whom she pleasantly relinquished when Dexter formally asked her to marry him. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Another summer. Another fall. So much he had given of his active life to the incorrigible lips of Judy Jones. She had treated him with interest, with encouragement, with malice, with indifference with contempt. She had inflicted on him the innumerable little slights and indignities possible in such a case, as if in revenge for having ever cared for him at all. She had beckoned him, and yawned at him, and beckoned him again, and he had responded often with bitterness and narrowed eyes. She had brought him ecstatic happiness and intolerable agony of spirit. She had caused him untold inconvenience and not a little trouble. She had insulted him, and she had ridden over him, and she had played his interest in her against his interest in his work, for fun. She had done everything to him except to criticize him. This she had not done. It seemed to him only because it might have sullied the utter indifference she manifested, and sincerely felt toward him. When Autumn had come and gone again, it occurred to him that he could not have Judy Jones— he had to beat this into his mind, but he convinced himself at last. He lay awake at night for a while and argued over it. He told himself the trouble and the pain she had caused him. He enumerated her glaring deficiencies as a wife. Then he said to himself that he loved her, and after a while he fell asleep. For a week, lest he imagined her husky voice over the telephone or her eyes opposite him at lunch, he worked hard and late and at night he went to his office and plotted out his years. At the end of a week, he went to a dance and cut in on her once. For almost the first time since they had met, he did not ask her to sit out with him or tell her that she was lovely. It hurt him that she did not miss these things. That was all. 
He was not jealous when he saw that there was a new man tonight. He'd been hardened against jealousy long before. He stayed late at the dance. He sat for an hour with Irene Shear and talked about books and about music. He knew very little about either, but he was beginning to be master of his own time now, and he had a rather priggish notion that he, the young and already fabulously successful Dexter Green, should know more about such things. That was in October when he was 25. In January, Dexter and Irene became engaged. It was to be announced in June, and they were to be married three months later. The Minnesota winter prolonged itself interminably, and it was almost May when the winds came soft and the snow ran down into Black Bear Lake at last. For the first time in over a year, Dexter was enjoying a certain tranquility of spirit. Judy Jones had been in Florida and afterward Hot Springs, and somewhere she had been engaged, and somewhere she had broken it off. At first, when Dexter had definitely given her up, it had made him sad that people still linked them together and asked for news of her. But when he had began to be placed at dinner next to Irene Scherer, people didn't ask him about her anymore. They told him about her. He ceased to be an authority on her. May at last. Dexter walked the streets at night when the darkness was damp as rain, wondering that so soon, with so little done, so much of ecstasy had gone from him. May, one year back, had been marked by Judy's poignant, unforgivable, yet forgiven turbulence. It had been one of those rare times when he fancied she had grown to care for him. That old penny's worth of happiness he had spent for this bushel of contempt. He knew that Irene would be no more than a curtain spread behind him, a hand moving among gleaming teacups, a voice calling to children. Fire and loveliness were gone, the magic of nights and the wonder of the varying hours and season. Slender lips, down-turning, dropping to his lips and bearing him up into a heaven of eyes. The thing was deep in him. He was too strong and alive for it to die lightly. In the middle of May, when the weather balanced for a few days on the thin bridge that led to deep summer, he turned in one night at Irene's house. Their engagement was to be announced in a week now. No one would be surprised at it. And tonight they would sit together on the lounge at the university club and look on for an hour at the dancers. It gave him a sense of solidity to go with her. She was so sturdily popular, so intensely great. He mounted the steps of the brownstone house and stepped inside. Irene. Mrs. Shear came out to the living room to meet him. Dexter, Irene's gone upstairs with a splitting headache. She wanted to go with you, but I made her go to bed. Nothing serious, I... Oh, no, she's going to play golf with you in the morning. You can spare her for just one night, can't you, Dexter? Her smile was kind. She and Dexter liked each other. In the living room, he talked for a moment before he said goodnight. Returning to the university club, where he had rooms... He stood in the doorway for a moment and watched the dancers. He leaned against the doorpost, nodded at a man or two, yawned. Hello, darling. The familiar voice at his elbow startled him. Judy Jones had left a man and crossed the room to him. Judy Jones, a slender, enameled doll in cloth of gold, gold in a band at her head, gold in two slipper points at her dress's hem. The fragile glow of her face seemed to blossom as she smiled at him. 
A breeze of warmth and light blew through the room. His hands in the pockets of his dinner jacket tightened spasmatically. He was filled with a sudden excitement. When did you get back? Come here and I'll tell you all about it. She turned and he followed her. She had been away. He could have wept at the wonder of her return. She had passed through enchanted streets doing things that were like provocative music. All mysterious happenings, all fresh and quickening hopes had gone away with her. They had come back with her now. She turned in the doorway. Have you a car here? If you haven't, I have. I have a coupe. And then, with a rustle of golden cloth, he slammed the door into so many cars she had stepped like this, like that, her back against the leather. So her elbow resting on the door, waiting. She would have been soiled long since there had been anything to soil her except herself, but this was her own self outpouring. With an effort, he forced himself to start the car and back into the street. This was nothing, he must remember. She had done this before and he had put her behind him as he would have crossed a bad account from his books. He drove slowly downtown and, affecting abstraction, traversed the deserted streets of the business section, peopled here and there where a movie was giving out a crowd or where consumptive or pugilistic youth lounged in front of pool halls. The clink of glasses and the slap of hands on bars issued from saloons, cloisters of glazed glass and dirty yellow light, she was watching him closely, and the silence was embarrassing. Yet in this crisis, he could find no casual word with which to profane the hour. At a convenient turning, he began to zigzag back toward the university club. Have you missed me? Everybody missed you. He wondered if she knew of Irene Shear. She'd been back only a day. Her absence had been almost contemporaneous with his engagement. What a remark. You're handsomer than you used to be. Dexter, you have the most rememberable eyes. He could have laughed at this, but he did not laugh. It was the sort of thing that was said to sophomores, yet it stabbed at him. I'm awfully tired of everything, darling. I wish you'd marry me. I think we'd get along. Unless you probably, you've forgotten me and fallen in love with another girl. Of course, you could never love anybody but me. I like the way you love me. Oh, Dexter, have you forgotten last year? No, I haven't forgotten. Neither have I. I wish we could live like that again. I don't think we can. I suppose not. I hear you're giving Irene Shear a violent rush. Oh, take me home. I don't want to go back to that idiotic dance with those children. Then, as he turned up the street that led to the residence district, Judy began to cry quietly to herself. He had never seen her cry before. The dark street lightened. The dwellings of the rich loomed up around them. He stopped his coupe in front of the great white bulk of the Mortimer Jones's house. Somnolent, gorgeous, drenched with the splendor of the damp moonlight. Its solidity startled him. The strong walls, the steel of the girders, the breadth and beam and pomp of it were there only to bring out the contrast with the young beauty beside him. It was sturdy to accentuate her slightness as if to show what a breeze could be generated by a butterfly's ring. He sat perfectly quiet, his nerves in wild clamor, afraid that if he moved, he would find her irresistibly in his arms. Two tears had rolled down her wet face and trembled on her upper lip. 
I'm more beautiful than anybody else. Why can't I be happy? I'd like to marry you if you'll have me, Dexter. I suppose you think I'm not worth having. But I'll be so beautiful for you, Dexter. A million phrases of anger, pride, passion, hatred, tenderness fought on his lips. Then a perfect wave of emotion washed over him, carrying off with it a sediment of wisdom, of convention, of doubt, of honor. This was his girl who was speaking, his own, his beautiful, his pride. Won't you come in? All right, I'll come in. It was strange that neither when it was over nor a long time afterward did he regret that night. Looking at it from the perspective of ten years, the fact that Judy's flair for him endured just one month seemed of little importance. Nor did it matter that by his yielding he subjected himself to a deeper agony in the end and gave serious hurt to Irene Shearer and to Irene's parents who had befriended him. There was nothing sufficiently pictorial about Irene's grief to stamp itself on his mind. Dexter was at bottom hard-minded. The attitude of the city on his action was of no importance to him, not because he was going to leave the city, but because any outside attitude on the situation seemed superficial. He was completely indifferent to popular opinion. Nor, when he had seen that it was no use that he did not possess in himself the power to move fundamentally or to hold Judy Jones, did he bear any malice toward her. He loved her, and he would love her until the day he was too old for loving. But he could not have her. So he tasted the deep pain that is reserved only for the strong, just as he had tasted for a little while the deep happiness. Even the ultimate falsity of the grounds upon which Judy terminated the engagement that she did not want to take him away from Irene, Judy, who had wanted nothing else, did not revolt him. He was beyond any revulsion or amusement. He went east in February with the intention of selling out his laundries and settling in New York, but the war came to America in March and changed his plans. He returned to the west handed over the management of the business to his partner, and went into the first officer's training camp in late April. He was one of those young thousands who greeted the war with a certain amount of relief, welcoming the liberation from webs of tangled emotion. This story is not his biography, remember, although things creep into it which have nothing to do with those dreams he had when he was young. We are almost done with them, and with him now. There's only one more incident to be related here, and it happened seven years farther on. It took place in New York, where he had done well, so well that there were no barriers too high for him. He was 32 years old, and except for one flying trip immediately after the war, he had not been west in seven years. A man named Devlin from Detroit came into his office to see him in a business way, and then and there this incident occurred and closed out, so to speak, this particular side of his life. So you're from the Middle West. That's funny. I thought men like you were probably born and raised on Wall Street. <laughs> you know, wife of one of my best friends in Detroit came from your city. I was an usher at the wedding. Judy Sims. Judy Jones she was once. Yes, I knew her. Awfully nice girl. I'm sort of sorry for her. Why? Oh, Lud Sims has gone to pieces in a way. 
I don't mean he ill uses her, but he drinks and runs around. Doesn't she run around? No. Stays at home with the kids. Oh. She's a little old for him. Too old? Why, man, she's only 27. He was possessed with a wild notion of rushing out onto the streets and taking a train to Detroit. He rose to his feet spasmodically. I guess you're busy. I didn't realize. No, no, I'm not busy. I'm not busy at all. Not busy at all. Did you say she was 27? No, I said she was 27. Yes, you did. Go on, then. Go on. What do you mean? About Judy Jones. Well, that's... I told you all there is to it. He treats her like the devil. Oh, they're not going to get divorced or anything. When he's particularly outrageous, she forgives him. In fact, I'm inclined to think she loves him. She was a pretty girl when she first came to Detroit. Isn't she a pretty girl anymore? Eh, she's all right. Oh, look here, I don't understand. You say she was a pretty girl now, and now you say she's all right. I don't understand what you mean. Judy Jones wasn't a pretty girl at all. She was a great beauty. Why, I knew her. I knew her. She was... I'm not trying to start a row. I think Judy's a nice girl, and I like her. I can't understand how a man like Lud Sims could fall madly in love with her, but he did. Most of the women like her. Lots of women just fade like that. You must have seen it happen. Perhaps I've forgotten how pretty she was at her wedding. I've seen her so much since then, you see. She has nice eyes. A sort of dullness settled down upon Dexter. For the first time in his life, he felt like he wanted to get very drunk. He knew that he was laughing loudly at something Devlin had said, but he did not know what it was or why it was funny. When, in a few minutes, Devlin went, he lay down on his lounge and looked out the window at the New York skyline, into which the sun was sinking in dull, lovely shades of pink and gold. He had thought that, having nothing else to lose, he was invulnerable at last. But he knew that he had just lost something more, as surely as if he had married Judy Jones and seen her fade away before his eyes. The dream was gone. Something had been taken from him. In a sort of panic, he pushed the palms of his hands into his eyes and tried to bring up a picture of the waters lapping on Sherry Island and the moonlit veranda and the gingham on the golf links and the dry sun and the gold color of her neck's soft down and her mouth damp to his kisses and her eyes plaintive with melancholy and her freshness like new fine linen in the morning. Why these things were no longer in the world... They had existed, and they had existed no longer. For the first time in years, the tears were streaming down his face. But they were for himself now. He did not care about mouth and eyes and moving hands. He wanted to care. And he could not care. For he had gone away and could never go back anymore. The gates were closed. The sun was gone down, and there was no beauty but the gray beauty of steel that withstands all time. Even the grief he could have borne was left behind in a country of illusion, of youth, of the richness of life, where his winter dreams had flourished. Long ago, long ago there was something in me, but now that thing is gone. 
Now that thing is gone. That thing is gone. I cannot cry. I cannot care. That thing will come back no more. End of play.